And uh, let's turn to the Gospel of Matthew in the New Testament, first book in the New Testament. And if you would make your way to Matthew chapter 2, that would be great. If you need a Bible this morning, just raise your hand. Charlie's in the back. He'd be glad to share a copy of God's Word just in case you need that. And there's a little note page in your bulletin if you would retrieve that as well. And, and church family, a quick glance at your note page or maybe the screen tips you off right away to the fact that we are not stepping once again back into the book of Ecclesiastes, which is our current study series. We were there this last Sunday, but we're not there today or for the next few weeks as we seek to make our hearts and and our minds ready for the celebration of Easter and the resurrection of Jesus, our Savior. That uh, We're heading off in a, in, a, in a direction in a little mini-series that we're calling When Jesus is Your King. We're going to step into the book of Matthew, and we're going to hang out with him in some key places where he, Holy Spirit-inspired, presents Jesus to us as the King. That he truly is. We've just been singing about the king. King of kings, Lord of lords, who lays down his life for his subjects and then rises from the dead. Victor over sin, death in the grave. And on your note page, just by way of a little bit of backstory, the New Testament opens. If you don't know your Bible yet real well or you're kind of new to the Christian faith and all of that, The New Testament of the Bible opens with the four Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And these four Gospels together form a unified and beautifully intimate presentation of the person of the Lord Jesus. From his entrance into our world at Bethlehem uh, through a virgin birth, through his earthly ministry, to his death on a cross, to his resurrection from the tomb, and all the way to his return back into heaven at the Father's right hand. These four Gospels give us all of that in a variety of different ways. And while Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are united in this focus on the person of Jesus, each one presents to us a unique emphasis as they share this information. Since Matthew, for example, is writing specifically to a Jewish audience, he presents Jesus as the promised king, the, the son of David, the Messiah who will forever sit on the throne of Israel as her Messiah king. Many times over the course of his 28 chapters, Matthew reaches back into the Old Testament because that would be important to the Jewish reader, and he retrieves prophecies telling how Jesus is the one who was promised to come. He uniquely presents Jesus as the king. He begins his gospel with Jesus' royal genealogy, for example, tracing Jesus' lineage back, his earthly lineage back to King David. And Matthew's the only gospel who tells us about the wise men who come from a region far away to worship King Jesus and give him extravagant royal gifts. Matthew's the one who ends his gospel with the famous words, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus is the king in Matthew's gospel. And because Jesus is king and Lord of all, he highlights the kingdom of heaven and Jesus as the king in a way that none of the other gospel writers do. It's a unique presentation. Mark, for his part, he presents Jesus as the 
suffering servant. Jesus will say in Mark 10:45, I did not come to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. Luke, well, he's the good doctor, and he likes to refer to Jesus as the son of man, emphasizing Jesus' humanity and supplying details about Jesus that are more earthy and and uh, more daily life oriented so that you and I can identify with Jesus in all of his humanness as well as him being fully God. And then speaking of Jesus being fully God, well, that's John's focus. He wants us to come away from his gospel with no doubt about the fact that though Jesus uh, was fully man, he is God in flesh. And that's why he says, I wrote my gospel so that you would believe in him who is God. So four gospels, four presentations of Jesus. But for our run up to Resurrection Sunday, we're going to hang out with Matthew and his unique presentation of Jesus as the promised king. Today, as you will see there on your note page from Matthew chapter 2, we're going to talk about the king coming. The king who comes next Sunday, Lord willing, if we're here and haven't gone to heaven with him, then we're going to be on Palm Sunday and we're going to go into Matthew chapter 21 where the king is presented to his people. And then later in that week, which is Easter week on Good Friday from Matthew 27, we're going to consider the death of the king for us. And then on Easter morning here at the Bible church from chapter 28, the king will rise from the dead. So our way of preparing our hearts and our minds for a super special Easter season, at least that's my prayer, my hope for us, is that we could use Matthew's words, uh, Holy Spirit inspired in this way. So today, church family, we're going to think about the king coming from Matthew chapter 2. The coming of Jesus from his glorious kingdom in heaven and entering our sinful world and bringing his kingdom with him. Your Bibles are open to chapter 2, yes? We're all there? All right. Now, now normally chapter 2 of Matthew is a place you might expect me to invite you at Christmas time. I mean, I've done that, right? If you've been around, you know I've done that a number of times. So it's kind of cool this morning to be out of season and yet be perfectly in step with the Easter season as we open our Bibles to this place. Now, it's always rather risky to tag something as being the most because that is a label that is so subjective and easy to be misused. But I'm going to do that anyway this morning. Besides Jesus himself, perhaps the most misunderstood and mischaracterized individuals in the Bible, I would suggest, are the three kings who come to worship Jesus here in Matthew chapter 2 shortly after his birth. Nearly every nativity scene includes the three kings, right? I mean, there's the song, we three kings of Orient are bearing gifts, we travelers afar, right? 
we're all familiar with these characters, with these images of, of these three kings wearing their royal garments and their crowns and, and riding camels as they methodically plod seemingly across the endless desert sand. And, and, and as they journey, there's always this star twinkling up in the sky above them. Where are the mischaracterizations in, in that presentation? Well, I'm glad you asked that question because I have some answers. There probably aren't three of these guys to start with. They most likely were not following a star, at least not in the, the usual sense of stars as we think of them as they travel. Uh, the camels. The camels are an insertion. We don't know about the camels, but that works well. They don't go directly to Bethlehem. They didn't arrive with Jesus in a manger, in a stable, and they weren't kings. Other than that, everything's really accurate, right? <laughs> Which is to say almost nothing commonly understood about these guys and this moment at the beginning of Jesus' earthly story is correct. Almost everything we will see today in Matthew's record has the potential of messing with years of some of the things that we may have held to be true about this part of Jesus' story. So church family, it, the, really this morning, it is why these wise men from the east come at all. That's what we want to think about. Why did they come? Because that is the truth that changes them. And it just might change us as well. So let's step into the story and see what's really going on. Verse 1, chapter 2. Let me read for us down through verse 3. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born, what? King of the Jews. For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Now, let's stop right there and notice right away that Matthew places the events of this amazing visit as being after, sometime after, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. We will learn a little bit later on that it could have been as much as two years after this moment. Well, what we do see here in this moment as well is that it's in the days of Herod the king. So we do have a time frame now for what's going on. So who is this Herod character? Well, he's known in history as Herod the Great. He was King Herod in the sense that he was the appointed provincial ruler in this region of the world as an underling of the superpower in play at this time, which was, of course, Rome. So he's called Herod the Great because he's incredibly talented. He's accomplished. He's well-educated. He's extremely skilled and savvy politically, perhaps best known for his extensive building projects, many of which still stand to this day. If you were to, to go on a tour of Israel, and a number of you have, then you would see buildings that King Herod built, and they are 2,000 years old, still standing. Very powerful, very accomplished leader. 
But history also remembers Herod as being exceptionally ruthless and cruel because he suffered from an over-the-top paranoia. To him, virtually everyone was a threat to his throne, to his power, to his position. And this will compel him to do some really terrible things. For example, this King Herod kills his own mother and two of his sons because he thinks they might be a threat to his crown. And just to make sure that doesn't happen, he kills them, his mom. And his two sons. Because he's so paranoid, he doesn't believe anybody likes him. Which may well have been true. But his ego is huge. He's so self-absorbed that he makes arrangements that upon his death, one nobleman from each of the prominent families in Israel is to be killed. Just to ensure that people cry at his funeral. That's how sick this guy is. Now, I'll just tell you, that order wasn't carried out, thankfully. He wasn't around to do anything about it by that point. But this is who is in power at the time that Jesus comes on the scene. Well, one day, Matthew tells us, an entourage large enough to send the city of Jerusalem a buzzing with amazement and questions just comes walking into the city. Who were they? Where'd they come from? Everybody's asking. What's their business here? The whole city is talking. Sometimes called magi. The ESV translates them as wise men. These are Babylonian, Persian astrologers. Now, astrology today is relegated to horoscopes and palm readers. That's how we we understand this word. But in the ancient world, it was much more more than that. These guys were astronomers. They are, they are educated. They are leaders, um, very skilled. And they formed the advisory council for most kings in the Persian world. Extremely capable, learned, wealthy, brilliant men, scientists, astronomers, diplomats, all kind of rolled up into what Matthew calls wise men. That's who they are. And they come from the east, the region that for us today would be modern-day Iran or Iraq. We kind of know that region of the world. It's been in the news for the last few decades. We kind of got that figured out. So they're about 900 miles and a month's journey from Jerusalem. At a walking pace, it would have taken them a month to get there. Now, here's a city pulsating and longing for the Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah to be fulfilled. The people are longing for the king to come. And here we have this king on the throne named Herod who ruled as a paranoid maniac with a trigger finger and it twitched every time he perceived that there was a threat to his throne. Can you imagine, church family, anything more disturbing or seditiously dangerous in the mind of Herod than to have high-ranking officials from a foreign country come walking unannounced into his city saying, the new king's been born. Where is he? We want to see him. What do you think that did to Herod? 
Well, that just sent him over the top. How long do you suppose the news took to get to his throne room? Maybe five seconds, right? What? What new king? Who are these guys? Did you check their credentials? What? PhDs from the University of Baghdad? Really? Fluent in Hebrew? They can speak our language? No kidding. Impressive. What makes them think a new king has been born? And why here? Well, we saw his star when it rose and we've come to worship him. That's their answer. We saw his star and we've come to worship him. Now that sentence is filled with a lot of mystery and a lot of intrigue. Let's begin with the star. We saw his star. They saw what most simply refer to as the star of Bethlehem. That's what we call it today. As you might imagine, there's a mountain of conjecture concerning what this star really is. Remember, the the movement of the stars was seen as a sign in the heavens. It it was a, a foreshadowing of something in this time. This is a big deal. Something in the sky is sending a message. We saw his star. Now, we see stars and we think galaxies far, far away, right? We think Darth Vader stuff. Planets, orbits, supernovas, black holes, and Hubble telescope stuff. When we see a shooting star on a dark night, we don't attach profound meaning to it, do we? We worship. We we wish it upon a star, right? We just fire up a little wish. Just a momentary bit of debris burning up in the atmosphere. That's all it is to us. But that wasn't the way it was back then. Things that happened in the sky, big deal. Now, these guys are learned, and they are very sharp. They're not fringe bloggers. They're not alien conspiracy theory guys. They saw something, and it spurred them to travel 900 miles to meet a new king. So what exactly did they see? The Greek word Matthew uses here, as we translate it star in verse 2, is the word aster. What English word do we get from that? Asteroid, of course. Now, that's the, this is the Bible's normal word for a star or a celestial body. The word's used 24 times in the New Testament, and most of those times it refers to a celestial body in the heavenly skies at night. Not always, but most of the time. And basic rules of Bible interpretation tell us that we should take the normal sense of a word unless there's a compelling reason not to do that. And so being the case, that being the case, there are scholars, Bible scholars, and astronomers, Christian astronomers, who argue that the wise men actually saw a heavenly body that was divinely directed by God to be in this place at this time for this event, foreshadowing and pointing to the coming of Jesus as the king. And these advocates of this position believe that the only known astronomical entity that fits all of that description would have to be a comet. A comet is what they saw. Now, here, for example, is a picture of the McNaught Comet. It showed up in 2007 over New Zealand. This is where it was. It was in the southern hemisphere, so we didn't see this comet. And is this what the wise men saw, possibly? Referring to it as a star, since they really would not have had an understanding necessarily of comets or in the way that we do. Well, maybe this is what they saw appearing in the west, pointing as it is, perhaps downward 
to a location. The closer to the horizon it gets, the, the more specific becomes the pointing. Divinely guided, it's a cosmic event in the form of a comet. That's what many would say. Others argue, no, 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 no. The wise men, could, they, they followed a supernatural phenomenon that can't be scientifically explained. And they give their reasons, and they say it's probably a manifestation of the Shekinah glory. Shekinah glory, what's that? Well, Shekinah means dwelling of God, and it was the visible presence of the Lord in the Old Testament, especially in the book of Exodus as Israel comes out of Egypt and God was with them in a visible way through a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. Remember all that? Well, the Shekinah glory, that's what that was. It shouldn't surprise us, so goes the argument that God would use a miraculous sign like his glory to signal the coming of his, his son as the divine king into the world. So is it a comet? Is it the supernatural glory of God? I don't know. You thought I would tell you, didn't you? I don't know. I'm going to leave you to do that. Do your own study and, and land where you think the evidence leads you in the most compelling way. For our purposes, let's be okay, church family, with just saying that a light in the heavens is being divinely directed to herald to these foreigners that a great king is born in Israel. Can we do that? I think we can. Now, here's the question. How do they come to this conclusion that a king has been born in Israel by looking at a star in the sky when they're clear over in Persian Iraq? How do they come to this conclusion? Well, here's what we think. They apparently are connecting this light in the night sky, this celestial body, with Old Testament scripture texts that they have in their possession. And we ask, well, how did they come by those? Well, there's a good chance that they were brought to Babylon, to Persia, when King Nebuchadnezzar carried the nation of Israel off into exile 500 years before this moment. Copies of parts of the Old Testament scriptures were left behind in Persia when Israel was later permitted to go back home and rebuild the nation. What prophecies might they have read? Well, perhaps ones like those at the bottom of your note page. Numbers chapter 24, verse 17 says this. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A what? A star shall come out of Jacob. And a scepter shall rise out of Israel. So this prophecy links a star to a scepter, and a scepter belongs to who? A king, right? So when a supernatural star shines in the western sky over Israel, these wise men perhaps conclude that a king has been born, just as his prophecy would have predicted. Or, or maybe Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, God foretells prophetically there through Isaiah, that the people, referring to Israel, who walked in darkness have seen a what? A great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. Maybe these wise men are linking this text to what they see. A supernatural light has appeared over Israel. A king, perhaps, has been born. Now, if you flip your note page over, 
these wise men had to have known about the writings of Daniel, right? Daniel had been a great court advisor to the Persian kings several hundred years before. He would have been revered. They would have known, for example, Daniel chapter 9, verses 25 and 26. No one understand this. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the what? The ruler, the king, comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble, after the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. Now, we're saying, what in the world is that all about? Well, we're not going to get too absorbed in that because that's not our focus this morning. But, but this is a super specific prophecy, church family, in which God declares through Daniel in Persia that from the time that the Persian king Artaxerxes gives the order for the Jewish people to go back to rebuild Jerusalem, we know that was the year 445 B.C., To the time that the Messiah King will be revealed, it will be 483 years. 69 weeks of seven years. I mean, these are smart guys. And they're putting this all together. These astronomers, scholars, diplomats connect what they're seeing in the heavens with what they've studied in the Hebrew Scriptures, and they conclude that the prophesied King has been born, and they say, let's go see him. Let's go. And so you pack up and they head out, but they don't go to Bethlehem. Where do they go? They go to Jerusalem, don't they? There's a reason why they don't go to Bethlehem. Apparently, they don't have a key prophetic detail that is found in the Old Testament book of Micah. Now, that's going to be rectified in in just a moment. So they go to Jerusalem because they reason, well, where else would the king of the Jews be born? Where would he be residing than in the capital city of Israel, the seat, the palace, the power of the king? We pick it up, verse 4. So Herod's heard now that they're in town. He's troubled. All Jerusalem's troubled with him. Verse 4 And assembling all of the chief priests and the scribes of the people, in other words, Herod brings all of his religious experts together, his advisors, he inquired of them where the Christ, where the prophesied Messiah King was to be born. And they told him in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, that's Micah, chapter 5, verse 2 of his book, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a what? A ruler, a king, who will shepherd my people Israel. Now, Herod is no biblical scholar, but any Jewish scholar who took Old Testament 101 knew that the great king would be born in the city of David, in Bethlehem. And so all his religious leaders are in full agreement. And the wise men's search now narrows significantly because they have a piece of information they didn't have before. Bethlehem. Verse 7. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and he ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. 
And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Now he learns from the wise men that they first saw the star two years before. Two years earlier, they saw the star. Herod assumes that the star's appearance marks the birth of this child. So, tell me, learned men from the East, how long ago did this happen? Two years. Oh, okay. And instantly we begin to just see his paranoid mind is starting to to turn. He's He's got a plan cooking. I'd love to worship him. Come back. Tell me where he's at because I want to worship him too. Right. Right. He only wants this new king, what? Dead. Dead. So after listening to the king, the wise men, they leave him. Now, Bethlehem is only five miles from Jerusalem. Anyone could have drawn them a quick map and sent them on their way, and they would have gotten to Bethlehem. But God, having led them thus far supernaturally, well, he he takes them all the way. Verse 9, And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Comet, Shekinah glory, some other supernatural manifestation, not super important in this moment. The wise men rejoice exceedingly because their search is about to come to fruition. They find the house where Jesus is living. Now, taking our cues from Herod and his interest in the time that the first star appeared, we can conclude that Jesus is not a newborn lying in a manger like all the Christmas cards love to portray. He's probably a two-year-old toddler. Verse 11, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now, tradition says there were three wise men because there were what? There are three gifts. And we make this extrapolation, which is totally unfounded. Nobody knows how many of these these learned men there were in this entourage. But now we have Mary and Joseph. And can you believe how blown away they would have been when this large Persian group comes and stops right in front of their house? The wise men immediately fall down and worship before this little boy who's two years old, perhaps not even giving Mary and Joseph any backstory. And they set before him their extraordinary gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And each of those gifts is a silent, powerful witness to who this child really is and what he will do. The gold. Well, that's the gold for a king, right? That's a gold for a king, the king of heaven, the Lord of glory. Jesus is the king. Let's give him gold. 
frankincense. That's the special spice that the priest in the temple used when he went before God. So Jesus is the perfect high priest, the ultimate high priest, representing God to mankind and representing sinful mankind to a holy God. Perfect. The gift of frankincense because Jesus is the perfect high priest. And myrrh? Well, that's the aromatic mixture that was part of how the body was prepared before it was buried. You used this as part of the burial process. Well, that's certainly not a gift that you would normally give to a small child, is it? But it is the perfect gift if the one you're giving it to, his whole reason for coming into the world was so that he could die in the place of sinners. That's the perfect gift. Myrrh. He'll die on the cross, buy us back with his life, the gift of myrrh. The wise men bowed down and they worshipped. For how long they worshipped, we do not know. Long enough to honor the king, long enough to utterly baffle his parents, his earthly parents, long enough to burn into their hearts a memory that will last them forever. God warns the men, the wise men in a dream not to tell Herod and that they leave by another way. They go back to Persia. An angel warns Joseph to get out of there and to escape to Egypt because because Herod's coming. Perhaps they pay for their trip with the wise men's lavish gift. Wouldn't it be just like God to pay the way? Yep. Herod finds out that he's been outsmarted and from his demented place of paranoid brutality, he sends soldiers to Bethlehem with an order to kill every male child aged two and under, not just in Bethlehem, but in the entire surrounding region. And, and, and so how can we even begin to comprehend the inconsolable cry that would rise up from these mothers whose arms are empty because of what Herod has done? This part of Matthew's gospel ends with wise men making their way back, a month-long journey back home. It ends with Joseph and Mary and Jesus finding a temporary new home in Egypt. It ends with families utterly devastated in and around Bethlehem. And it ends with a deranged pseudo-king fuming that a star had announced the birth of the true king and he couldn't get to him and kill him. And so now, as we would wrap up this well-known moment from the Bible, from the life of Jesus, can I ask each of us to ask ourselves and then answer for ourselves the question that we'll put up on the screen. Spiritually speaking, who in this story most accurately reflects me? Who in this story, spiritually speaking, accurately reflects me? Herod the Great, the religiously informed priests and scribes of Jerusalem, or the wise men from Persia? Let's tease this out for just a moment. Could I be like Herod? The wise men were overjoyed at Jesus' birth, but not Herod. For Herod, Jesus represents a threat to who he is. 
his position. He is, after all, Herod the Great. His whole identity is wrapped up in himself. He was king of his world. He built what he wanted, the way that he wanted it. He did what he wanted to do, when he wanted to do it. He was free, and he answered to nobody. He sat on the throne. He's the king in his world. But he knew one thing about himself. The heavens didn't announce his birth. No ancient prophecies from Holy Scripture whispered his name. No foreign dignitaries arrived to honor him at his birth. In other words, he was Herod the Great, but compared to the king of heaven, he was not that great. And this new king was a threat. Herod's reaction to the person of Jesus, I believe, church family, is a reflection of why many reject Jesus and Christianity in our own time. Jesus always represents a threat to our vision of our own personal greatness. Would you agree with that? He does that. A threat to the monuments that we build to our own self-importance. Jesus is a threat to our autonomous, independent, I answer to nobody but me, pride. Agreed? Jesus is a threat to that. Jesus is a threat to our, our, our idea of moral freedom, reminding us if there, if there is a God and God sent Jesus, then I can't live the way that I want to just for myself. I have to answer to this God, this King. Jesus reminds us of that. We think we are so and so great. Until our little kingdom encounters someone whose name is Jesus, whose claims and accomplishments are far greater and more glorious than ours. And that he asks for our worship and our allegiance. He's the one the ancient prophecies predicted. Someone for whom stars and angels appear when he enters the world. If Jesus is God in the flesh, if he is the king of heaven, born supernaturally of a virgin, then I am Tim, the not so great. I'm not autonomous and independent, and I am not, it's all about me, Tim. If he is who he says he is, then it's all about him. And that's a threat. We see the lordship of Jesus not only in his resurrection, which we'll celebrate in two Sundays, we see his kingship at his birth into our world. He begins his life as the glorious king of heaven, come to this little speck of dust. His kingship places a moral and spiritual ultimatum upon the pride of my life. Unless we bow down to this king who has come, We don't want him in our life. And we'll do whatever we can to keep him out. Many people stumble on Jesus at this very point, don't they? Like Herod, their pride and their self-importance can't tolerate a rival, can't tolerate a king. Nobody can tell me what to do. Really? Nobody can tell you what to do? Even if he's the king of the universe? Might we be like Herod? 
Could that be possible? I don't want this king in my life. Second question, could I be like the religious leaders? It's a pretty shocking picture if you stop and think about what's happening in this moment. When asked where the Messiah would be born, the priests and the scribes rolled their eyes and said, Duh! Everybody knows the prophecy of Micah. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. But let's not miss this. Even with the incredible news of a guiding star and a heavenly light aligning with biblical prophecy from the Old Testament and scholars arriving from far, far away, not one of these religious persons in Jerusalem has enough personal interest to walk five miles to Bethlehem and check it out. I find that amazing, don't you? These are religious experts. The Old Testament specialists, spiritual stuff is what they do. If anyone, we might think, would make the hour and a half walk down the hill to Bethlehem to check out this potentially earth-shattering, life-changing development, it would be these guys. But they don't. They do not make that five-mile trek to Bethlehem. I couldn't be like one of these guys, could I? having religion, but never having made the trek to really investigate Jesus, really search him out? Do I, do I know all the details of the Christmas story? Can I name all the players at the nativity? Am I a religious person? Maybe from my childhood, I grew up in the church, I go to church, I sing the songs and I, I give my tithe, but deep down uh, at, the, at, the, at the heart level, my personal investment in Jesus and his kingdom is minimal and it is self-serving. I have Jesus in my head, but do I have him in my heart? I've got religion, but do I have relationship? through faith in him as the king? I know all the answers. I know all the Bible stories. But I've never walked to Bethlehem to worship him. Could I be like one of those religious leaders? Not really interested in being in relationship? Or, or, am I like these wise men? The wise men put to shame the then sitting king of Israel named Herod and the religious experts. Why, they're not even supposed to be a part of this story, quite frankly. They're Gentiles. They're non-Jewish ethnically. In centuries past, their ancestors invaded Israel, destroyed the temple, deported the people of Israel off to to become slaves in their land. They're pagan idol worshipers by birth. They're not good Jewish folk. They practice astrology and they blend multiple religions, which the Old Testament condemns as sin. But that's just it, isn't it? That's just it. Who did Jesus come to save? Who did he come to save? Who flocks to him in the Gospels while the religious types push him away and want nothing to do with him? Who comes to Jesus in Scripture? 
Oh, it's the riffraff. It's the tax collectors, church. It's the, it's the thieves. It's the prostitutes. It's the Gentiles. And yes, it's the astrologers. The Gentile astrologers bow down before Jesus. And that, I would suggest to you, is just a preliminary hint of all that Jesus' story as Savior King is going to unveil. They're a picture of who Jesus came to save. From the beginning, even a small toddler is worthy to be worshipped because he's the king. The king promised from long ago. I believe that's why the wise men are included by the Holy Spirit in Matthew's gospel. Is because it's the marginalized and those most likely to not be saved who have hope. And they follow. And they search until they find. And then their lives are transformed. It's why they have the hunger and the desire. Where is he who has come, who's been born king of the Jews? We want to worship him. A loving and gracious God placed that hunger in their hearts, gave them their sense of need. And he rearranges their world and even the heavens in this case to make sure that people like that have the opportunity, the unspeakable privilege of bowing before the Son of God who is King. So what about us? Today, God's not using stars to tell us that Jesus has come. Now he uses his holy word the Bible, and perhaps other Jesus followers whose lives have been transformed by Jesus. And he has you, he has all of us here in Matthew chapter 2 today. Are we, all of us, church family, all of us, are we all wise enough to bow down before Jesus as Savior and King? All of us in this room? You might have come here today. It is possible that you came here today too invested in your own agenda and your own greatness to allow Jesus to have the throne of your life. You could still be sitting on the throne of your life right now. That's how you came in this room. You may have sat down today drawn to spiritual notions that you collected over a period of time, but you've never gone all the way to Bethlehem. You've never given your heart to the king. Could be. That's how you came today. But here's the truth. By the simplest expression of personal faith in who Jesus is and what he has done for sinful humanity, dying on the cross to pay a sin debt we could never pay, rising from the dead to prove that he's more powerful than sin, death, and the grave, we can become like the wise men and replay their faith journey that brought them to worship at the feet of Jesus. Those wise men didn't know about Jesus' death on the cross. They didn't know about his resurrection. They simply knew he's the king. The wise men bowed down because the king has come. May we be like them. Amen? Let's pray. Let's pray. How kind of you, Heavenly Father, 
Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, to preserve for us this amazing moment in the story of our salvation, our redemption. And thank you for giving us this picture that really speaks to the spiritual truths of our time. There are those who want nothing to do with Jesus because he's a threat. And if, if that be you this morning, if you, you've always felt like you need to be the king of your life, maybe today, today is the day that God is inviting you to step down off the throne of your life, give that throne to Jesus, and you bow in worship of him because he's Savior and Lord. Maybe that's what God's calling you to do today. Or maybe you have had a lot of religion, but you have not had much relationship. Maybe today, today's the day when you make that trek to Bethlehem and you bow at the feet of Jesus because he's your king and he deserves your worship. And I know that many in this room are wise. You know who Jesus is. You know what he's done. You've given him your life. Because he's the king. And you are glad to be a subject in his kingdom. Knowing in your heart of hearts that he, the king, died for you. And rose from the dead. Lord, thank you. Thank you for letting us see Jesus in this special way today. Thank you, thank you that you sent him to us. Our king has come. We love you but only because you loved us first. And all God's people said, amen and amen. Let's stand, church, let's sing before we head home.